We seem to have a need to categorize people. What do you do? Oh, you're a lawyer, or a doctor, or a teacher, or a writer, or an actor, or a reporter, and so on. But most of us are not just one thing. In that way, life is much more interesting. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success, the early obstacles, Plan Bs, the doubt, and the passion to push forward. Trying to categorize Baratunde Thurston misses the point, but whatever he's doing, he does it thoughtfully. He describes himself on his website as writer, activist, comedian. Whatever the forum, his terrific 2012 book, How to Be Black, his podcast, How to Citizen with Baratunde, his 2019 TED Talk, or his PBS show, America Outdoors, Baratunde Thurston is a really perceptive, smart, clever storyteller who makes me think. He grew up in D.C., trying to negotiate two different worlds, his neighborhood at home and the private school he attended in a much different neighborhood. I first interviewed him after his book, How to Be Black, came out, and that's where we resumed the conversation. In 2012, you wrote a book, you published a book, a beautiful book, How to Be Black, funny, poignant, really thoughtful. Thank you. And so let's start off with the notion of if you are writing that book right now, would it have the same kind of tone to it? I think it would, because I still uh, consider myself all those words <laughs> that you used to describe the first book. So it would still have a, a funny and uh, thoughtful, playful tone. I would probably cover wider slash different ground, but the core essence of uh, not letting others define you, which I think is the deeper message, not just how to be black, but kind of how to be yourself, would remain. Uh, I think that's an ongoing opportunity for us all. And uh, I just probably have some different stories to uh, expand the range of, uh, of ground that the book covers. Do you think the thread from that book is a, a straight thread to your current projects, like your podcast, How to Citizen, and also the PBS show, America Outdoors? There is a there is a relationship between those two. I don't think it's a straight line. I think I've taken a lot of twists and turns over the past eleven years, uh, but but they are they are on the same ground. That you know, how to be black was me wrestling with um, other people trying to define me, uh, folks who were saying, "Oh, you're you're too black for this space," which is kind of America's message to most black people writ large, uh, and then black folks saying, "You're not black enough for us," which is you know, a consequence of uh, of having outsiders tell you who you are and trying to kind of perform your identity as opposed to just being yourself. Um, what I have found with How to Citizen and America Outdoors, both of those shows are trying to help us figure out what the story of ourselves is, like the story of us and who we are. And it's my attempt to contribute to a collective mirror or narrative uh, about how we can be. They're they're all hopeful, so they're in that that thread. They're all have they all have threads of humor in them. Um, I think how to citizen is much broader than than how to be black, just in terms of who I'm trying to address. And, and America outdoors is taking a particular lens through human relationships with each other and with nature uh, as a way we approach that question. But I I just I mean, you have me think out loud here, making sense of my whole life on the spot. Thanks, bud. 
Um, <laughs> that, that all of, we I, start with the we start with the small question. I know he didn't even ask how I was doing or like how's my health. You know, okay. that's fine. That's fine. how are you doing? How's your health? <laughs> oh, don't pander now, but it's okay. okay. I know. Oh, oh, I know your agenda. This pandering is only getting rolling, my friend. <laughs> only getting rolling. So yeah, I'm, I think all of these projects are me wrestling with identity um, yeah. and and a version of collective identity. What does it mean to be black? What does it mean? to be a citizen, not in the legal sense, but in the participatory sense. Uh, what does it mean to be in relationship to nature? And uh, and I seek out in all of those cases, positive answers to that question. One of the beautiful uh, pieces on the show, on, on the PBS show in terms of nature was the island off the coast of Virginia, Tangier. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, what did you? Why did you? Why did you describe that as beautiful? What stood out about that? Story? Oh, it just was really thoughtful. Yeah. I mean, as is all of your work, but just the notion of—I think we have this notion of there are islands off the coast of the continental United States. That's the one I'd never heard of. Yeah, and also the notion of seeing climate change right there. Uh, do, when you started this series, uh, did you have a certain expectation of what it would be like and? And has the series been as you expected, or are there surprises along the way? Um, so, for those who haven't, you know, watched the show, which I assume is most of the population of Earth, uh, Tangier <laughs> Island is in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay off the east coast of the U.S., and it is disappearing due to rising sea levels. Uh, it's a hyper-conservative town, voted overwhelmingly for Trump twice. I got to hang out with the mayor who is a crabman by trade, many generations of crab crabbers uh, on that island and their lifestyle and livelihoods and lives are threatened uh, by the disappearance of their home. So watching people wrestle with identity loss in a literal sense, people who wouldn't necessarily use um, human caused climate change in, in, they'd use all those words, but not necessarily in that order to explain <laughs> what they're experiencing um, and, and, portraying and feeling a sense of empathy and, and shared narrative we're all we're all going to lose something we all have already lost things in this climate you know crisis that we find ourselves in and i found that to be a very human story and a very humbling story uh getting well beyond the headlines and, and political labels into real lived experience when you have to rebury your dead uh because the the water has flooded the um, graveyards that's a real impact so this, the show has been very surprising. It, it has exceeded my expectations in the range of people. And I think most, most significantly, I think the show exceeded my expectations for how it would make me feel. I knew it would be a fun show. I knew it would be cool. I knew it would be interesting and thoughtful. I could just see how they were. And then we, when I got involved, were developing it. Um, but being in the field and feeling that connection, this, this country's very, very uh, divided and, and seemingly so. We're actually not quite as divided as we feel, but we feel really, really divided. And there's political violence and there's absurd um, rhetoric and there's a, an ability to get basic things done and then a focus on things that don't hurt anybody, bathrooms and the people who use them. Um, distracting us from you know climate crisis economic uh, inequality all kinds of storms access to housing like there's a whole bunch of stuff going on and so what i've in my general life bud i tend to talk about those things 
and so to pontificate on them. And uh, and I'm not necessarily like physically in the mix on a day to day basis. The show got me out of the studio, so to speak, and out of the kind of pundity energy and just in a much more embodied, interactive, physical space to see the country, to feel the country and to connect with people that many of us have opinions about or talk about or fear. Um, to actually be in the shared space with them on different terms, you know, on the terms of a raft or horseback, not on the terms of your stance about this political figure. And that was healing for me. Um, and so I think I'm most surprised by the, the healing experiences I've had with the show, both politically, but also ancestrally, connecting with, you know, histories of many Americans, especially black Americans and our relationship to this land um, which has not always been a fun one. So yeah, didn't expect that going in. Expected a lot, got more. Any experience that you can have professionally or personally that starts with healing, that's pretty good. It's a great, and it's not, most people don't expect that. Most people don't get that. So I feel very, very lucky um, that, you know, I'm having fun, I'm getting compensated, I'm safe. <laughs> you know? uh, I respect the people I work with. And I'm learning. All that's like already the best job. But then to have some sense of, of healing and, and a way to make sense of the world is, is a real bonus. Uh, the, you mentioned earlier uh, when we started about the notion of, oh, you're not enough this for this. You're not enough this for that. Yeah. Um, as I understand it, you have some experience with that from when you went to Sidwell, went to school growing up in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, you've talked about you're getting criticized at Sidwell for talking like you were from was it Newton Street? Yeah, yeah, that's where I, I And then you're getting criticized at Newton Street for talking like you're at Sidwell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's the, at the risk of asking an obvious question, what's the lesson taken away from that experience early on? That you cannot let others define you. And that's, that's hard. That's, it's actually can be hard to say, but it is easier to say than it is to do. We're social creatures and we want to, be loved and we want to feel like we belong we want to be accepted and so we will do all kinds of things to feel accepted you know look look at the republican party right now you know contorting itself to defend potentially criminal behavior on the part of part of the former president because they want to be accepted you know by him and by the people who really love him despite what they know to be true inside themselves that's not a unique behavior to republican members of congress you know that's very human I've done it, not around insurrections, I have a different line, but I've done, I've behaved in that similar pattern. And so the lesson is that is a, that's not a sustainable way to be. And it's certainly no way to, to be free uh, by letting other people kind of define the terms of that freedom for you. The Was good it news, confusing for you at yeah. the time, that notion of seemingly from yeah. what I've read, from what you've written, you know, living in two, not maybe not two different worlds, but certainly two different atmospheres. Yeah, I mean, everything's confusing in middle school and high school. So. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> and That's... so in some cases, like I'm, I'm whining about the human condition um, and, and high school is evil and hormones are confusing, but- <laughs> Yes, they are. There was- um, The I name think... of my second album, by the way, Hormones Are Confusing. Hormones just Are Confusing. For, just for the record. <laughs> uh, 
the um it was confusing on occasion i think in the moment i wasn't often as aware of the disconnect or of the missed expectations as i you know learned about later there are things that kind of learned about the the thoughts and feelings of my my high, fellow high schoolers about me being black and getting into harvard for example tons of resentment i was not aware of in the moment i learned about that later hmm. um and so it's like oh okay so again we we have a an opportunity to revise our understanding of ourselves constantly uh, i think that's been a a bigger lesson you know that i've been learning over the past decade it's like oh if i if i write that book again it's gonna be different because i'm different even hmm. if i covered the same time period of my life my understanding and ability to make sense of that is different i've had new experiences i've lost things i've gained things and that malleability that flexibility um i'm trying to learn to embrace that you know rather than be freaked out by it like but it must be a certain way well it ebbs and flows you know that's kind of what life can do when you're growing up uh, in washington dc raised by a single mom was there pressure and how hard she's working as you've described uh in your TED talk, in your writing, uh, was the pressure to succeed as your young kid? Was it some? Was it uh, specific, tangible, or was it more of a subtle? There's a big world out there, and you can go grab it. It was specific and tangible. My, <laughs> my mother had specific and tangible expectations uh, of me and of my older sister. She made it clear that her standards uh, were not to be confused with other parents' standards. No matter what your little friends can get away with, I'm not raising them, I'm raising you. Um, there was a, a bit of a balance to it in that my mother didn't have specific expectations of who I would become, you know, or, or maybe a better way to say, she didn't have specific expectations of kind of what I would do, but she did have specific expectations of how I would do it uh, with excellence, with integrity, with honesty, and it didn't matter to her whether I chose to try to pursue life of a doctor or a pastor or, mm -hmm. or a sanitation worker. Um, it was much more important the how uh, than, than the what. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, but there was implicit pressure, but about, you know, I just had a lot of visibility into our financial situation, into her work and stress situation that I would not want to repeat. You know, I wouldn't want to go through that again. I wouldn't want to uh, impose that on, on any child in my life. I think there was like too much transparency. And so I internalized a lot of her battles and burdens in a way that I just don't think was fair. Um, and I think it, you know, because of how I'm already wired, it made me feel responsible for things that a child shouldn't be responsible for. Hmm. Uh, you've written about the story of your biological father who was killed in a drug deal when I believe you were six years old. Is that a cautionary tale that's talked about in your home growing up or was it a subject better left alone? So this is one of those examples where um, the story changes depending on when you tell it and what information you have access to at the time. So oh, okay. my father was shot and killed. I, uh, I have since reconnected with his family. Uh, since the well since the book came out and uh and according to them it was a robbery gone wrong um he was you know uh a substance user and abuser and so drugs were a major part of his life and there was never 
um, witness or prosecution, deep police investigation, no one was ever held accountable. So we can never know the specific details of what happened that you know late night in Washington D.C. on that in that school playground. Um, what, as as I was growing up, we didn't talk about my father very much. He was a a man with a lot of demons, and then he expressed those in ways that were harmful to many people around him. So there are parts of my childhood which you know accidentally and tragically also shielded me from some of those demons. Um, and I think, you know, my mother had interesting choices, you know, how does she talk about this person who she loved, who also caused harm, who we all lost and she didn't demonize him. You know, there was never a moment of like, you're just like, you're no good daddy, right? That's, that's a common trope, but also a common experience that I didn't have to wrestle with. Uh, but the silence was, you know, also left a bit of a gap. And so since the book has come out, I've continued on a kind of healing journey to make sense uh, of this person who helped make me a person and to interact with his family, which is also my family. I have a grandmother who's uh, in her very late 90s, and that's been a whole infusion of knowledge and experience uh, into you know, how I came to be here and it has helped make some sense of my life. I've interacted with, you know, an uncle who looks a lot like me, who I had no interaction with. It's just like wild at, at this late stage in life to kind of meet a relative and see some shared traits that you might have and also feel a great distance because, you know, we all were in D.C. at the same time, but having very different experiences once, you know, our families split with that murder. Uh you're you're at this school, uh, Sidwell. It's well known, yeah. uh, private school in the D.C. area. And you're, as you once told me, you're getting a lot of positive reinforcement. You're doing shows. Yeah, uh, things are going well. Life, you're doing man. very well academically. You once told me something which I thought was incredibly thoughtful, uh, and that is, um, you had some notion that you didn't want to create grief that you had experienced on the other end with the death of your father. Yeah. And I'm curious if that's something that comes to you as a person in middle school or high school with all the other stuff that's going on. Or was that, that a thought that really kind of you came upon, you figured it out later on, you had been acting it, but then all kind of realized, oh, yeah, that that makes sense with my story. Yeah, that, that I figured it out later. I mean, I was a smart kid, but I wasn't that smart. <laughs> mm. And especially anything that sounds wise almost certainly came uh, a bit later. I was uh, trying to get girls, failing, trying to get rid of acne, failing. You know, I had the things I didn't want, and I'm one of the things I didn't have, which is a uh, common childhood experience. Yeah. Are you telling my story or telling your story? <laughs> Again, or we have a of, lot. All in, of our stories. Because we are, you know, ultimately, we have a lot of uh, presentations of difference and, and a lot of stories of difference. But underneath of that, we share so much. Uh, we share emotions, we share DNA, <laughs> uh, we share desires, and we share fears. And uh, that, you know, commonness should allow us to connect more. Uh, and that's that's something that, again, as a child, I wasn't actively understanding. But now at 45, I'm like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. And I'm not like original, 
you know, we all stumble upon ideas that like gurus and spiritual leaders and political and, and writers and artists have been trying to communicate for a very long time. Like, we are one. Ah, now it makes sense. <laughs> but when it when the light goes on for all of us, you know, no we, matter what the subject, yeah. that's a blessed moment. It is. It is. And we need to, um, there's, a, there's a lot of profit in spreading darkness. And so yeah. any of us who can, can activate our light and share it, we're doing all of us a service. Can you tell me uh, about the kid at your high school yeah. and the moment, uh, if you can recall, yeah. who recommends to you, you know, you should do the newspaper. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. I need to be able to name this person and, and <laughs> okay. give him credit. <laughs> But I can get close. I mean, I've, I can see his face. I know exactly where we were. We were walking. For anyone who actually knows the Sidwell campus, there's going to be a few of you listening. We're walking behind Zartman House on the hill above the track, um, the, the spot where we graduated from. And he's like, I think you should do Dave. His first name was Dave. I think you should do the newspaper. And I was, I was curious enough to follow his lead. Never mind the fact that my older sister, nine years ahead of me, worked as a journalist, as a newspaper reporter. No, 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 no credit there. No credit, it was freaking Dave at Sidwell. Okay, I'm sure she's happy <laughs> on a that. random stroll behind Zartman House. He's like, I think you should do the newspaper. Okay, strange kid. And, and so I do it. And, and uh, friend Paul Hodgden, he um, was you know a year, two years ahead of me, one of the leaders of the paper, uh, black kid, mixed race black kid who really took me under his wing. We became friends. My mom approved of him as like a good guy. And uh, she didn't know all the fake IDs he was printing in his home. And I actually recently reconnected with Paul on a visit to DC. And it's so much fun to relive those days. I mean, we used to make a newspaper by hand, by hand, bud, like wax, burning my fingertips at That's the it. print shop on a Monday night at three in the morning, uh, bleeding into Tuesday. So that, that newspaper experience reminded me um, or showed me that I could enjoy writing, that I liked, I could be nosy with purpose and have an outlet for my curiosity, uh, that I could be on a different kind of stage and, and love that attention game, man, who, I mean, most of us do in some level. Uh, and that would set the direction for the rest of my life in many ways. So I, I owe a debt of gratitude to Paul Hodgson, uh, to Dave, whatever your last name is, bro. I'm so sorry I forgot your last name. To the Horizon student newspaper and, and all the student newspapers that give kids a chance to practice, you know, who they want to be. You know, I was just about to joke that, uh, you know, you talk about the wax we did it by hand. Yeah. And then, yeah, and before that, to get to the meeting, you had to walk seven miles in the snow. You know, <laughs> Uphill both ways, barefoot, thing. yeah. But all joking aside, uh, you took a bus and then uh, a row with a friend, as I understand it, to yeah. get to that school. And you're there early and you're seeing kids drive up in um, not a bus. Not a bus. Say. Yes. Right. Yes. So definitely major class differences with my experience. Financial aid made my time there possible. Uh, so a lot of scholarships. Yeah. Is that, uh, you know, again, the notion of a learning moment when you're yeah. 13, 14, I got it. You're the, I, you know, the ideas are not so big uh, as opposed to the specific ideas you talked about earlier. But is there some notion of, huh, this, uh, I got to learn about this world or did it have an impact on you then? Or is it something that only upon reflection? No, this, this is one of those things that was clear in the moment. 
and I, I give myself some credit here. Hmm. Um, the hormones didn't totally blind me to observational skills. It was it took a lot of effort on the part of a lot of people for me to be able to go to that school. Um, it, it took my mother taking out loans and sacrificing and going through just the hurdles of the application process and interacting with these parents of privilege uh, with whom you know she didn't have a ton of experience and that was uh, difficult for her at times. I wouldn't, traumatizing is probably not the exact right word, but it was troubling for her to, to have to go into that world with me at times. Um, it took the effort of the school, you know, to extend opportunity to, um, to recognize how dope I would make them look in the future, bud, <laughs> <laughs> and expand that financial aid package. It, it took effort on my part to yeah. recognize my value in the moment and demand more and, and understand that I deserve to be there despite not having some of the uh, outward appearances of, uh, of belonging, you know, vehicles, money, attire that would, uh, you know, justify my presence there. And it, and it took scholarship committees, you know, it took the ancestors to set me up for that moment. So I was aware of most of that at the time because it was like a physical reality. It took a long time to get to that school uh, on a daily basis and historically. Mm -hmm. And I could see, you know, and feel the difference um, with a few other students kind of like me, like, yo, this is this is kind of a big deal. And recognizing, you know, the thing that I remember writing in the book that I remember knowing at the time was the assumption of self-worth was taken for granted. Um, I deserve this was just unsaid and given. And that's a really powerful orientation uh, with which to live. And it's something mm -hmm. that I really observed most strongly in the first time in my life at Sidwell. These teachers, these parents, these kids, like we deserve this. We deserve this well-manicured field hockey field. We deserve mm -hmm. this extraordinary science lab with a teacher who has a relationship with the National Institutes of Health such that we are contributing to the Human Genome Project as high school students in the 1990s. We deserve this other parent relationship with Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, an internet backbone company. So we have a always-on, then-broadband T1 internet connection in high school in the mid-1990s. All of that stuff sets me up to be who I am today. And I recognize the rarity of it at the time. Uh, I have one question about Harvard. Actually, yeah. I have many questions, but I'll focus <laughs> in on this one. You're a philosophy major at Harvard, correct? Correct. Okay. I'm curious how that conversation goes at home. Okay. Oh, yeah. uh, in other words, you're heading off to Harvard or you're at Harvard and great. And, uh, when we think of uh, majors and what will come afterwards, philosophy, which is, you know, only been studied for you know thousands of years and is a part of who we are. Is there a, a, a conversation you have to have with your mom who might be pushing for you to major or focus on something else? No. Wow. As I, as I said, um, my mother didn't concern herself with the specifics of what I became, but right. the, the principles of how. And she was excited for me. My mom was a philosopher, huh. right? In, in an informal sense. You know, my mother never graduated from a university. She 
made it partway through University of the District of Columbia, which has since been renamed. I attended classes with her at night at Montgomery Community College in Montgomery County, Maryland, which has since been renamed because time does that. Uh, but she was thirsty, starving for knowledge. She was curious about the nature of the world, of existence, of the nature of knowledge itself. Like, what is that if not a philosopher? She w had so many books. She pursued so many spiritual paths. I went to Buddhist meditations and chantings and temples with her as she pursued that. I was baptized Catholic. I switched to the Episcopal Church because it was closer. And there's a cute girl who went there and it was right across the street. So like my mother was a model philosopher in wrestling with these things. She didn't have the luxury of time to like academically pursue it and get the credential. Uh, but she was very curious about the world and she encouraged that in me. So there was never a conversation of how are you going to make money with that degree? Her coworkers had those questions when I would visit her at work. Oh, what are you going to do with that philosophy degree? <laughs> how are you going to get a job? <laughs> My mother was never a part of those jokes uh, or, or those slights. She saw that you know I could do what I wanted to do and I would figure it out. She had faith in that. Sounds like a rock star. She was a rock star. Yeah, I, get, I mean, huge credit. And there, there are many peers, many friends I've had whose parents had a much more hands-on approach to their lives in, in that regard. And I'm, I'm just really lucky that, um, that she didn't and that I turned out all right. <laughs> oh, more than all right. More than all right. Uh, a couple of quick things before as we start to wind down. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by people in positions that 99.9999% of the rest of us uh, have not been in or won't be in. Yeah. Uh, how did you get the call to be invited to the Obama White House to discuss uh, new technology? Oh my Do you remember goodness. where you were? And I got to imagine maybe had a little celebration. Uh, many celebrations. Many ce and actually, <laughs> have a, there's a funny security story at the White House if I can move fast enough to tell you. I believe that my first uh, trip to the White House, there were several during the Obama administration. Many people don't know this, but if you were black during the Obama White House, you could just go. Uh, there was a passcode, <laughs> and I'm still not allowed to repeat it on pain okay. of prosecution by the federales. But um, being a blogger at the time, uh, I helped run a blog called Jack and Jill Politics. We focused on black political thought, progressive perspective, uh, focused on the U.S., me and my, my partner then, Cheryl Conti, uh, in business. And they had set up at an office, essentially of blogger relations. Um, and so I think the very first time I went was the Eisenhower Executive Office building, and it was, they basically treated us like a press pool. They were, they were the first White House to see internet journalism as journalism. And so want to have a relationship and try to get their message out and take questions and all. Um, the further advising role came indirectly through Fast Company magazine. I had been featured as a part of a cohort of folks, Generation Flux. And how do you keep up when technology is changing communications, innovation, operations so quickly and so I was there with a number of other people, uh, journalists, entrepreneurs, actors, and, and we were brought in as a kind of informal counsel. None of this was employee status. Uh, we did have to go through background checks, but we weren't compensated for this. This is all kind of volunteer service. So I didn't work for the White House, uh, right. but I did advise them on a number of occasions about these changing technological times. And once they, you know, they give you this pass, like a physical hard pass had the letter a on it and i left the white house not returning it to the secret service booth and i'm walking down pennsylvania avenue when traffic could still be on that road 
and uh, this cop like races up to me. He's like, "Sir, where'd you get that badge? You gotta gotta give that back." And I was like, "What is going on here?" Because uh, apparently I could have forged it and all this kind of other stuff. So I had a little security breach by accident. Uh, no classified documents though. No classified uh -huh. documents. In that moment, and in all the projects you're doing now, yeah. uh, the PBS show, How to Citizen, uh, and also the terrific TED Talk from a couple of years ago, can you point to what the early years for you growing up in the D.C. area, Sidwell, Harvard, early years in your career, do they have a tangible effect on the work that you are doing now? Everything I'm doing now, I tried in high school. Everything. The, the obsession with technology, not just for the sake of tinkering or, um, you know, tech toys, but on how to create with them, uh, on, on what it would mean for how we communicate, for how we self-govern, for how we citizen. That started there. The, the, the idea of citizen as a verb, that's something we do. I practiced that at high school through demonstrations, through organizing, through campus leadership, through failing a lot, uh, through trying to get our voices heard to the administration and, and various grievances and, and understanding power, you know, which is one of our principles of how to citizen. We had racial tensions, most places do. Um, and in our case, you know, I and the other leaders, we kind of mapped the power structure of the school and we're like, okay, the board of trustees, I mean, they, they oversee all this. We should go to them. That's, you know, not every student would think to do that. But because of the environment we were in, because of the mother I had, that early understanding, that instinct to try to diagnose where do you intervene in the power structure to shift its use, that occurred to me really early on. And now there's a whole podcast and a website and a set of actions called How to Citizen. But I'm sure that started uh, in my childhood, in my house first, uh, and certainly in school after that. Baratunde, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. You do really thoughtful and clever and interesting work. Uh, I felt that throughout your career, and uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation. So do I, but it's really great to have this reunion with you. We have both come a long way uh, in the past decade. I'm so, so glad uh, to see you again. Baratunde Thurston. You can check out his writing online on his author page at Puck News. His podcast is called How to Citizen with Baratunde, and he's host and executive producer of America Outdoors with Baratunde Thurston on PBS stations. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey. <laughs>